My name is Brian Hayes. I'm the 2007 program chair for the Chicago chapter of Cornet Global. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to our annual year in review program. And what a year it's been. I was just making note that uh, in February and March of this year, we had a $39 billion announcement when uh, Equity Office sold their portfolio to Blackstone. And that seems like a long time ago. And uh, the bookend to that is a $39 billion write-off that GM took yesterday. <laughs> so I think that kind of sets the stage for our discussion today. And what better time to gather our panel of experts. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by uh, Paul Beitler, founder and president of Beitler Real Estate Corporation. Uh, Darren Bulow, partner in, the, in Deloitte's consulting uh, strategy and uh, operations practice. And Bruce Miller, managing director and leader of the Capital Markets Group for LaSalle, uh, uh, or Jones Lang LaSalle here in Chicago. Uh, each of these gentlemen brings a unique perspective to the discussion. Uh, Paul Beitler, obviously from the developer's point of view, very well known here in Chicago. Darren Bulow as a consultant to major corporations around the world. And uh, Bruce Miller's day-to-day -day involvement with the capital markets, which are very near and dear to a lot of us in this room right now. Uh, so they'll come up in a few minutes. But before uh, th they join us, I would like to introduce today's moderator. And we're very fortunate today to have Paul Casriel. Paul is the Senior Vice President and Director of Economic Research for the Northern Trust Company. Uh, he joined Northern in 1986, so he's been around a little while. And we should pay close attention because Paul has actually won awards for his accuracy, something I think a lot of uh, economists can't claim. But uh, he, he, as a matter of fact, he won the 2006 Lawrence R. Klein Award uh, for having the most accurate economic forecast among blue-chip participants for the years 2002 through 2005. So pay attention. Uh, the Northern Economic website was also listed as one of the top ten most interesting by the Wall Street Journal. And Paul is the co-author of a book entitled Seven Indicators That Move Markets. Paul began his career at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. He is currently a lecturer in finance at DePaul University. Maybe some of our students out here have actually enjoyed his lectures. Also lectured at Northwestern University and currently serves on the Economic Advisory Committee of the American Bankers Association. So Paul will join us. He'll set the stage with uh, an overview of what's going on right now, and then we'll lead into our panel. Paul? Well, thank you very much. Uh, I like to uh, <clears throat> start these presentations out <clears throat> with a, kind of a, a brief uh, overview of the economic environment. Uh, let's see, oil is uh, closing in on uh, $100 a barrel. Uh, gold is closing in on $850 an ounce. Uh, as a national economy, uh, we spend about $800 billion more a year than we produce. Uh, in many parts of the country, housing has been more overvalued than ever before, and households are up to their eyebrows in debt. So you, you might ask, Paul, what good news do you bring us this afternoon? And the answer is my car insurance rates were lowered. I just went with Geico, so that's uh, what I'm going to do is, and I've got a lot of slides, and thankfully for you, I'm not going to go through all of them. Um, <clears throat> but I just want to give you a, a kind of a brief uh, overview of 
how I think uh, economic activity is going to be developing over the rest of the year and through 2008. Uh, you know, it's a macro view. I'm not going to talk uh, directly or specifically about commercial real estate uh, for a couple of reasons, but the most important is I don't know anything about commercial real estate. Um, but uh, I think that uh, the view uh, will have s some uh, very important implications for the real estate. Um, I don't know how this works. What? Oh, point at you. Oh, okay. Wrong point. Wrong. Page up, page up. All right. Yep. Got it. How do I get rid of this thing now? Oh, okay. Well, I want to tell you that you really don't need me to tell, tell you what the economy is going to do. All you have to do is pay attention every month to something called the Index of Leading Economic Indicators. Uh, this is an index that uh, is compiled by the Conference Board, a uh, nonprofit business and economic research firm in New York. It's made up of 10 economic variables that historically uh, show uh, leading characteristics for the economy as a whole. In the chart, the uh, red line is the year-over-year -year, uh, percent change in the index of leading economic indicators, and the blue bars are the year-over-year -year growth in the overall economy. Uh, the leaders don't tell you where we're going to be five years from now. That may be very important uh, for some of you. Uh, but they do tell us, uh, uh, give us a good indication, sort of of the uh, uh, trend uh, behavior of the economy over the next uh, several quarters. And you see in the chart when the red line goes up, the blue bars go up and vice versa. Uh, the red line has sort of been heading south for uh, a couple of years now. It actually peaked in this cycle in the first quarter of 2004 uh, at growth of 9%. In the uh, first half of this year, uh, the leading indicators were down versus the first half of 2006. Uh, in the third quarter, we uh, peaked a little bit uh, above the equator, uh, but I think that uh, may be a false dawn and, and we're likely to slip back uh, below. Um, now, this group of economists uh, that I uh, uh, compete against in the blue chip survey, uh, if you were to look at uh, our average forecast, average forecast or consensus forecast, we have never forecasted a recession, okay? Who said it's a dismal science? You know, we're always... Uh, but um, the leading indicators have forecasted every recession since 1960. Uh, and the leaders actually just, you know, for good measure, threw in a recession that we didn't have as well. But, uh, but at least they got most of them. And the leading indicators uh, are what I refer to as the Rodney Dangerfield of economic statistics because they don't seem to get much respect from other economists. And the only reason I can figure that out is job security because the leaders actually do a better job of forecasting the cyclical behavior of the economy uh, than uh, does the consensus forecast of economists. Uh, but the leaders are basically saying things are going to be sluggish for a while. Now, we all know what has been sluggish, uh, and that's been housing. And I'm going to spend uh, some time on housing because I think housing is very important uh, for the behavior of the overall economy. And the red line in this chart 
represents something called housing affordability. Uh, this is an index that um, relates affordability to the cost of a house, the cost of financing that house, and the income of the buyer of that house. And uh, in the summer of 2006, housing affordability fell to its lowest level in 20 years, lowest level since 1986. Uh, one factor that uh, weighed on housing affordability was the increase in interest rates. Uh, the blue line in this chart is the 30-year mortgage rate, and it moved up marginally. But it, it really didn't play a, a big role in bringing down housing affordability. Today, the 30-year mortgage rate uh, is somewhere around 6.5%. Back in 1986, it was 10.25%. Now, of course, the Federal Reserve uh, was pretty active between the end of uh, or June 2004 and June 2006. Uh, the Fed raised the Fed funds rate from 1% to 5.25%. Very large move. Uh, in a two-year period. A lot of mortgages are tied to short-term interest rates today, and that brought down housing affordability. But the biggest thing driving down housing affordability was the sharp increase in house prices relative to the income of the buyer, and that's what's uh, shown in this chart. And in uh, 2005, we hit a record high, 470% uh, value, uh, median house price to median uh, household income. Uh, and you can see in this cycle, uh, we've just uh, gone up quite sharply. It uh, fell back a little in uh, 2005. Um, you know, former Fed Chairman Greenspan was fond of saying when he was Fed Chairman, uh, he says a little different things now, but when he was Fed Chairman, he said that there was not a national housing bubble. There might be some regional bubbles, but there was no national housing bubble. And I didn't often agree with Fed Chairman Greenspan, but on this point we did agree. Only in those regions where people lived was there a housing bubble. <laughs> Other than that, everything else was okay. Um, I've done a little back-of-the-envelope calculation. And to get back down, to get this ratio back down to its 2001 level, uh, of 366%, we would need about a 17% decline in the median uh, price of a home in 2007 to get us back to that ratio. So uh, that gives you an indication where uh, house prices are likely to go. Um, why uh, did we see this sharp acceleration in uh, house prices? Well, there were two factors. One of them was the very low interest rates that were engineered by Greenspan. Um, and I noticed, uh, I was looking at some data uh, one uh, Saturday night in early 2002, and that kind of shows you the exciting life of an economist, right, looking at data on Saturday nights. And uh, I noticed that for the first time since the late 70s that the annual rate of, of appreciation in house prices was greater than the 30-year mortgage rate. So you could buy an asset that was going up in value at uh, a faster rate than it cost you to finance it. No guarantees it was going to continue to go up in value, but uh, that was uh, certainly a very uh, positive situation for housing. 
So I'm an economist, and I made a forecast. I forecasted that housing was going to be a very important sector uh, going forward in the economy as long as this relation held. Now, to illustrate the difference between an economist and a portfolio manager, I didn't act on that forecast. I didn't buy any additional real estate or any home-building stocks, and that's why I'm still up here working rather than retired. But at any rate, uh, we did see this uh, uh, positive carry, if you will, uh, go to record levels in this cycle, but now hot house prices are falling so that at any positive rate of interest we're going to have a negative relationship and the bloom certainly is off the housing uh, rows. Now another factor, it, I think it was low interest rates that kind of uh, gave us liftoff in the housing uh, cycle, but what really put housing in orbit was the new uh, types of mortgages that were uh, originated during this cycle. Uh, when I bought my first house in 1977, I was given a choice of either getting a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage or paying cash for it. Those were the alternatives. Uh, today, hardly anyone gets a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. In fact, in the last couple of years, uh, almost half of all mortgages applied for had a variable rate uh, element to them. Uh, but we've had some really interesting kind of variable rate mortgages in this cycle, and one of them is called the option arm. Uh, option adjustable rate mortgage. Now it's kind of called the exploding arm, but the option arm. And to, and to put it in its simplest terms, the option arm mortgage is one in which the borrower has the option of sending in each month whatever he or she feels is appropriate. And if it doesn't cover the interest on the loan, don't worry about it. We'll just add that onto the principal because we all know that house prices only go up and there'll be a happy ending to the story. Uh, what's more, is some people were qualified, a lot of people were qualified on the basis of these artificially low interest rates in the early term of the mortgage. So if the uh, originator even bothered to look at the income of the uh, borrower, it uh, uh, didn't matter uh, because they were really uh, qualifying them on the monthly payment maybe over the first two years of the loan, which was artificially low, rather than some uh, realistic lifetime uh, payment. So in effect, um, borrowers could borrow more relative to their income in this cycle. And if you can borrow more, you can bid more, and that, I think, really drove the, the prices up. Now, um, some people have decided recently that the appropriate amount to send in to your uh, lender each month is zero. Uh, in technical terms, that's called a default. And um, uh, we, you know, as uh, lenders often do, uh, after the uh, uh, horse has left the barn, uh, they close the doors. And lenders are now tightening up quite dramatically on their, uh, on their lending terms. In, for mortgages across all classes, uh, not just subprime mortgages, but even prime mortgages. Uh, and by the way, uh, in the latest Federal Reserve survey of bank lending practices, uh, bank lenders are tightening up quite dramatically, or at least uh, more and more of them are saying they're tightening their lending standards in the commercial real estate uh, sector as well. Uh, but now, two years ago, um, you know, all it took was a pulse to get a mortgage, uh, and that was really negotiable, and it takes a little bit more uh, today. So effectively, uh, housing affordability has fallen quite dramatically. Um, if something is less affordable, we tend to see less of it purchased. 
Uh, and that's what these blue bars are in this chart. The year-over-year percent change in uh, single-family homes sold. And notice that the blue bars start to uh, uh, lie below zero uh, in 2006. And in fact, in September of this year, um, single-family homes sold uh, contracted by 23% on a year-over-year basis, the largest decline on record. Uh, The red line uh, represents single-family homes for sale, uh, and while the rate of increase has slowed, it's still growing at double-digit rates, 12%. So uh, we have supply growing at 12%, and we have demand contracting at 23%, obviously not very good odds for the housing market, uh, and not very positive for prices. And uh, again, looking at an existing single-family home, uh, the price of that home sold fell uh, by almost 5% year-over-year in September, uh, the, the biggest year-over-year decline that we've seen. Uh, and I would argue that we are going to see uh, even more declines and perhaps declines uh, at an even uh, faster pace, that is, to the downside, because we have approximately $685 billion of non-prime adjustable rate mortgages that are subject to resets between now and the end of 2008. $685 billion. We have not yet got in to the real uh, uh, heart of resets. Uh, a lot of these mortgages were made in 05 and 06, which was really sort of the bottom of the uh, Uh, underwriting standards. Uh, A lot of these mortgages were made with no down payment. And so a lot of these mortgages are going to end up in default uh, and uh, repossession. There is no more motivated seller of residential real estate than a bank that has taken a house back. They want to get rid of it. So we're going to see a sharp uh, increase in repossessions and we are going to see uh, a lot of downward pressure on house prices as a result of that. Now, the reason I spend so much time on housing is I think housing played an enormous role in this economic expansion. And one way to gauge that is to take the dollar volume of home sales and compare it to the size of the economy, or GDP, gross domestic product. And if you do that calculation, you'll find out that from 1968 through 2006, the median percentage of dollar volume of home sales to GDP was 8.4 percent. In, or I think it says 8.4 percent. In 2005, that ratio was 16.3 percent, almost double the median, a record high. So, you know, in 1999, when you went to a cocktail party, all the talk was, uh, uh, did you see how uh, that Northern Trust tech fund was doing? You know, it was all about the stock market. Uh, In 2005, when you went to a cocktail party, did you see how much the Joneses house sold for down the block? That pigsty, my house must really be worth a lot. So housing became a big deal. Housing was a big deal in creating jobs in this cycle. I estimate that from the end of the recession in 2001 
to the uh, end of the uh, housing expansion, two, uh, 2005, into 2005, approximately 35% of all new jobs created were housing-related, and that's a conservative estimate. Now, when I say housing-related, I'm not just talking about construction workers. I'm talking about real estate brokers, mortgage brokers, home appraisers, title insurance workers, furniture and uh, appliance makers and sellers. 35% of the new jobs created were related to housing. That is now slowing down. But that's a conservative estimate. There were jobs created that we cannot identify directly with housing. Uh, if you're going to build a lot of new houses, you have to move the lumber from one place to another, transportation. Uh, all of the freight haulers now are reporting declining volumes because of the recession in housing. Uh, advertising uh, saw uh, big increases in revenues. That's slowing down. But uh, one other area that saw a lot of job and income growth was the financial sector. Mortgages, house Home mortgages are the biggest single debt instrument in the economy today. They are bigger than the federal debt. Don't worry, the federal debt's going to catch us pretty soon. But right now, mortgages are the biggest. And, of course, the mortgage industry has changed dramatically uh, since I bought my first place in 1977. At that time, the institution that originated the mortgage held the mortgage. Today, that mortgage may be originated by a mortgage broker who used to be a uh, used car salesman uh, and probably will return to being a used car salesman. Uh, and then it's sold to Countrywide, and then Countrywide takes it and sells it to Merrill Lynch, and then Merrill Lynch takes it and does some uh, finan financial alchemy and sells it to uh, some pension fund or hedge fund or something. So it changes hands many times today. That's called securitization. And each one of those hands uh, gets a commission and generates some jobs. Well, those jobs are now in retreat. Of course, we know of some very uh, 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 high-level jobs that were eliminated in the last couple weeks. But uh, Challenger Gray estimates that in the third quarter of this year, 65,000 uh, pink slips were handed out in the financial services sector, and there are going to be more to come. So my advice is, if you own residential real estate in Greenwich, Connecticut, get it on the market now, because those bonuses are going to be bad, and there are going to be a lot of layoffs, and there's going to be a lot of real estate for sale. Um, so job creation is slowing, and uh, by the way, you know, there's an old saying that the public should not uh, be allowed to see two things being made. One of them is sausage and the other is legislation. I would add a third. I would add a third thing. Official government statistics. I'm going to tell you folks, these employment data are bogus. There is something wrong with them. And uh, so, but even if you take the bogus numbers, there has been a definite slowdown in employment and it's going to continue. And that's going to have a negative impact on consumer spending. In the GDP accounts, the spending accounts for the total U.S. economy, housing directly only accounts for 5% of total spending. Consumer spending accounts for 70%. And I think you're, gonna, you're starting to see now a spillover from, consumers, uh, from housing to consumer spending. One is employment. The other is the home ATM is now draining. What I mean by that is in this rapid run-up in house prices, 
Some people who bought their houses several years ago saw a sharp increase in the equity in their house, the difference between the, the market value and the outstanding mortgage amount. And so they used this uh, opportunity to extract equity by taking out a bigger mortgage and going out and buying a big screen TV or putting the kids through college. Well, house prices are falling now. That means that that home ATM is draining, not uh, rising, not increasing. And also, the transaction cost of tapping that home ATM has gone up. Like I said, two years ago, a pulse would get you a mortgage. Today, it takes more. So this is another area where we're going to see uh, an impact, a very big impact, I think, on consumer spending, mainly discretionary. Now, we're already seeing uh, discretionary consumer spending being hurt. I can think of no purchase, no consumer purchase, that is more discretionary than a Harley-Davidson hog, okay? And Harley is reporting a sharp slowdown in their domestic sales. Another uh, discretionary purchase would be a powerboat. Now, I happen to think that a sailboat is a necessity, but a powerboat, that's, that's different. Um, Brunswick Corporation, uh, the biggest producer of uh, uh, recreational boats in this country, uh, said that its marine division is now taking on water. So we're seeing it there. Today, uh, we had uh, the major retailers report their uh, October sales. Uh, they came in below expectations. Last month, or that was for October, September they came in below expectations. So I think we're now starting to see the housing market uh, catch up with uh, the uh, uh, consumer. It's been a long time coming, but it's happening. Um, this uh, chart shows you um, household uh, surpluses or deficits. And what I've done here is I've taken household after-tax income and subtracted from it total household spending, spending on consumer goods and services, spending on housing. Uh, if the blue bars are above zero, uh, that means people are spending less than their uh, income. If the bars are uh, below zero, people are spending more than their income, they're running a deficit. Uh, the data go back to 1929. From 1929 through 1998, there were six years in which households ran deficits. Two of those years were during the Great Depression. Three were right after World War II, and the uh, sixth one was in 1955. I can't figure out what happened in 1955 other than the fact that we bought a new car that year. That must have done it. But uh, starting in 2000 or 1999, households began to run deficits, and they began to run record deficits, records in absolute terms, records in relative terms, relative to their after-tax income or GDP. There are two ways that you can spend more than you earn. One of those ways is to increase your borrowing. The other is to sell assets. And households have been doing both of those. The blue line is the uh, total household borrowing as a percent of after-tax uh, income. It went up to record highs as the mortgage market has slowed dramatically. We've seen uh, that ratio come down. It's still at a very high level. That is over. We're, we're not going to see that much borrowing, household borrowing. By the way, uh, households evidently are now tapping their 401Ks, borrowing against their 401Ks because the house is no, that, that home ATM is draining. The other way that we can uh, finance that uh, deficit is to sell assets. 
Households are net sellers of corporate equities. The biggest buyers of corporate equities today are corporations. Corporations have been engaged in a massive buyback of their shares in recent years. And there's another entity that's been buying corporate shares, and that's private equity syndicates. Uh, together, they have taken record amounts of equity off the market. So the reason the stock market up until recently had been going up was not because corporate profit growth had been strong, not because the economy had been strong. It's because corporations had been buying back their shares and private equity had been buying out uh, privately trade, or, uh, publicly traded corporations. Now, corporate profit growth is slowing. Uh, these are government uh, data, uh, and I violated my rule using government data here. But... Uh, we got to stop. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm doing a Diane Swank here. No. Uh, corporate profit growth uh, has slowed dramatically, and um, uh, they're not going to have uh, the profits to buy back their shares. Uh, and we're seeing increases in uh, uh, borrowing costs in the private sector, and that's going to slow down buybacks and buyouts as well. Uh, all right, you get the message. <laughs> the economy is in for some very tough times going forward. I don't know whether we're going to have an official recession or not. I have an indicator that says it is. This indicator has predicted every recession since 1970. It's not had any false uh, alarms. Uh, but I don't know. But I am pretty sure we're going to see a very sluggish economy going forward. And it's important for people in, in commercial real estate to appreciate that commercial real estate is a lagging sector of the economy. First, housing slows down, consumer spending slows down, then capital spending and commercial real estate. So if my forecast is right, that we're only going to grow at about 1.5% if we're lucky uh, over the next five quarters, it could be uh, tougher times for uh, uh, commercial real estate. So on that uh, happy note, I'll stop and, uh, and now bring up some real experts uh, you know, my son once said an economist is someone who knows a lot about stuff most people don't uh, care about. So, uh, and that's true. So I told you a lot about what you don't care about. What you're here for is commercial real estate, and now we've got some people who know a lot about that. So if the panel would come up. All right, to my extreme right in a nonpartisan way, is uh, <laughs> Paul Beitler. <laughs> Paul Beitler is uh, one of Chicago's best-known real estate uh, leaders and developers for over 30 years. Uh, his firm is one of the most respected uh, real estate firms uh, in Chicago. Um, he has... Uh, been involved in the largest single transaction in the history of Chicago, the long-term lease of the Bank One uh, Center by Bank One. Um, he's uh, a member of uh, civic and cultural uh, institutions. He serves on the Board of Trustees of the Museum of Science and Industry, a uh, member of the Architecture Committee of the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, International Board of Directors of the Frederick uh, Remington Art Museum in New York. Uh, he's a volunteer 
at the Child Center at the Children's Memorial Hospital. And when he's not doing all of that, <laughs> he's flying his uh, private jets and uh, his, uh, his helicopter. He's a very accomplished pilot. Uh, and he's also uh, a genuine war hero. So that's uh, Paul Beitler. Uh, next is Darren Bulow. Uh, Darren is a uh, partner at Deloitte Consulting. And uh, he's involved in over 16 years uh, in providing facility, supply chain, construction, and location solutions for clients. Uh, he's very much involved in global location strategy, uh, uh, not only in uh, North America, but uh, places uh, from uh, Mexico to uh, China to Singapore to Hungary. Uh, so uh, he knows all about uh, location, location, location. Uh, and uh, uh, Bruce Miller uh, is a uh, managing director of uh, uh, Jones Lang LaSalle, heads up their capital markets group. And he knows all about selling uh, real estate. Uh, he's been doing it for a long time. Uh, he's sold over $4 billion of investment-grade uh, commercial real estate. Uh, so uh, he's on the uh, sales and financing side. So we've got a great panel here. Now, I talked about um, uh, difficulties of financing in the um, residential real estate market. Uh, we all know that commercial real estate uh, lives and dies with uh, financing. Uh, what's happening in, in that sector? Uh, well, my first question is, who was talking about Martini Ranch again? <laughs> <laughs> After that uh, introduction to the economy. Uh, the, the financial picture in the markets, most of you are probably familiar with it, but you know, just real quickly, Obviously, this work has all started in the residential sector, and there has been a ripple over into the commercial sector. A lot of the organizations that made massive amounts of uh, loans, these subprime loans that people talk about, uh, have uh, spillover into the commercial sector because a lot of them are making loans both on the residential and on the commercial side of the equation. And because a lot of lenders have uh, taken billions of dollars of losses on the residential side, uh, a number, a number, almost every lender in the country has decided to really uh, pull back their uh, free reign, uh, as it seems, of lending into the commercial side. And so what's happened is that of all the lenders out there who a year ago uh, would, on the commercial side as well, uh, be very aggressive in making loans to both very stable and some risky uh, real estate propositions and lending very uh, high amounts to them, they are now pulling back significantly. And in fact, a number of lenders, at least for the next couple of months, are truly out of the market. Uh, they're just not making any loans whatsoever. And so the question is, what's the implication of that? The implication of that is if somebody wants to sell a property and there are fewer lenders out there and the lenders that do exist are being much more onerous in their terms uh, rather than lending as much as maybe 80 to 90 percent of the total sales price or value of the asset, they're now in many cases lending more like 50 or 60 or 65 percent 
of the value of the assets, it means that buyers are not able to pay as much for the assets. A lot of the asset value run up over the last couple of years is really attributed to the fact that uh, lenders were willing to advance massive amounts and there were uh, a number of investors out there who were just uh, levering up as much as humanly possible and, and paying higher prices as a result of the fact that they could get lots of inexpensive financing. Uh, and so what's going on in the markets right now is there are fewer properties for sale. Uh, those properties that are for sale are achieving lower prices. Uh, there have been a lot of statistics out there about how much pricing is off, and I would tell every single one of you uh, not to believe a word that you hear because nobody really knows yet how much pricing is off. Uh, there just haven't been enough trades, there haven't been enough sales to have a large enough sample size to be able to say pricing is off 5% or 10% or 15%. Um, but uh, what we're definitely seeing is a flight to quality. So those assets that are higher quality, uh, that have a uh, longer lease term or that have better underlying credit behind them are assets that can be financed more favorably and are more likely to sell. And so as a result, those assets have not had quite as much of a detrimental impact on their pricing as those assets that are 50% leased, 60% leased, or potentially vacant. Uh, by the way, this is an open forum, so uh, it, like a Quaker meeting. If the spirit moves you, uh, uh, you know, ask ask a question. Uh, well, Paul, I, what are you seeing? Out spirit moves you. What are you seeing in terms of the the, the financing implications for for development now? Okay, here we go. <laughs> We've sure had a lot of fun in commercial real estate lately mainly because when it looked like we were going to have an opportunity to really make a lot of money, along came in 1995 the REIT. And the REIT was a vehicle by which people who would never normally be able to own real estate, a piece of the Sears Tower, now had a way to do it. Prior to that time, a very select group of people called commercial office building developers went to a handful of people in New York City who were called institutional investors, insurance companies, banks, rarely a high net worth individual, and we could borrow tremendous amounts of money. I could go there in one day and raise six or seven hundred million dollars. Then came REITs. And what REITs did is that they took out of the economy the money that we would normally have coming to us through institutions, and they used this as an opportunity to go around and push us to the side and to buy real estate uh, in the early stages at a very low rate because they were bottom feeding and then it, as time went on they paid a very high price for it. Now we have a new vehicle that is even worse than REITs. It's a REIT on steroids called the private equity fund. And the thing that is alarming the government about private equity funds is that unlike a REIT, they're not supervised, they're not regulated, they're not legislated and they become very, very powerful. And now they're competing with everyone. Uh, when you see a private equity REIT buying Chrysler, I mean, that's a pretty powerful REIT, or I should say fund. So we're having a problem today, raising capital to do new buildings. As a consequence of that, now capital's chasing existing properties. And you're going to see more and more existing office buildings sell at prices that are not supported by the cash flow. 
there's another reason why this is happening. The darling of our industry has always been number one, demand, and number two, capital availability. But there's this third stool leg that we've always taken for granted that we can't anymore, and that's called the cost to build, construction. And right now, construction is going up faster than interest rates, faster than values, faster than anything in the marketplace, and nobody's talking about it. Today, our costs to build are going up 3% every quarter. That's 12% a year. I can't make an investment that isn't a high-risk investment at that same rate. So as a consequence, it's almost impossible to build. We started a project in Waukegan to do an apartment complex up there last year. Between last year and, and now, we don't have enough money to build it, so we have to go back to the city and ask them for supplemental financing in order to make it happen. And for only one reason, because of the cost of construction. So it's going to be an exciting time. You're going to see a lot of existing buildings become far more valuable than they've ever been simply because their replacement value is greater than the cost to build in going forward. Another question, Paul. It's pretty obvious I know nothing about uh, commercial real estate. <laughs> uh, and it was uh, apparent to most that in uh, 2006 we were in for tough times in terms of residential real estate. Um, and while Chicago didn't have uh, the, the same uh, degree of excess as uh, San Diego or Miami, um, Chicago has been overpriced by uh, many metrics in, in terms of uh, residential real estate. Yet in the last six months, I have seen new condo developments in the city of Chicago being started. What, what, what am I missing here? You have to be a developer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's two things. Number one, the availability of capital was there. Never let it be said that the developer won't build if he has money. And then number two, it's the mentality, if we build it, they will come. And that tr traditionally has fostered an environment because inflation has always bailed us out. Well, it's not happening. Inflation has slowed down. Um, Mr. Greenspan has been helpful in that respect. So as a consequence, the valuation of the dollar continues to decline. The euro continues to excel. Uh, we continue to delude ourselves into thinking that this is good for our economy because Brunswick can sell more boats in Europe than they can here. So our exports are doing far greater than we expected. But we're dying slowly here. Uh, you may find this shocking, but in the last 20 years, there has been zero growth rate in rental rates in commercial properties. There has been no real growth rate in commercial properties. So what does that mean? It means what we've had for the last 20 years is a musical chair game here in Chicago, not, not dissimilar to how mortgages are sold across the United States from one institution to another. And the concern will be what happens when the music stops. So Sam Zell acquires a whole bunch of properties, puts them into a REIT, rides the elevator valuation up, says, ha-ha, now's the time to sell when we were at a 9% market. He sells them to Blackstone. Blackstone now, a private equity fund on steroids, has an opportunity to get this massive $39 billion portfolio. What are they going to do? Well, we all know this sum is worth more 
the, whole, the parts are worth more than the sum. So they're now selling. So they now sell a huge portion of it to Tishman Spire here in Chicago. Tishman Spire becomes the largest commercial property owner in the city. They, in turn, start spinning off some of their properties. And it's a musical chair game. And at the end of the day, I don't know who's going to win, Paul. It's, it's, it's really going to be interesting. <laughs> I agree. Uh, Darren, we hear a lot about globalization and uh, uh, emerging markets, and uh, uh, you deal in uh, international location uh, analysis. What, what are we seeing there? Is, are, are we seeing uh, relatively stronger demand for space abroad than in the U.S.? Or, and what kind of space are we seeing a particular demand for these days? Yeah, so um, you know, I think that a lot of companies are are looking to uh, overseas markets, as Paul alluded to. Actually, as both Pauls alluded to, uh, to diversify what's going on in this country and what we all think might go on in this country in the next several years. Um, you know, from our perspective, we see a lot of corporate demand happening uh, overseas. You know, everyone's read about what's going on in China. China, 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 enough said. Um, India is also uh, very big from a, a commercial and corporate real estate perspective right now, as are emerging markets in Eastern Europe. And I would call them secondary markets in Asia, um, kind of the China alternative for those that need to protect intellectual property. So, I mean, that, that said, I think that there's still a, a lot of demand outside the U.S. Um, you know, my perspective on this panel is a little different. So I'm not, I'm not coming from the money side of things or from the development side of things. It's more from the end user, um, the corporate tenant, what are our clients who are corporate real estate executives and, and CEOs and CFOs, what are they thinking about from the, um, the commercial and corporate real estate side? And, and one of my, my reactions to what I've heard so far is um, this is playing into what we're seeing in the marketplace with companies continually trying to optimize what they've got. Um, we are seeing a slowdown for new projects, a slowdown for de demand for, for new space. Um, I think construction prices are, are hitting a lot of that, as you allude to, Paul. But I also think that companies are trying to optimize um, the price of the space that they have, the volume of space that they have, and how they're going to manage the space that they have. And they're, they're seeing dollars there. So this continued pressure on corporate profits are uh, forcing companies to rationalize uh, what they've got, how much they've got, what they're paying for what they have, and how they manage it. And that, that plays out into some other trends. You folks are here to learn about real estate, commercial real estate. I'm sure you have some questions. This is your opportunity. Can the, can the foreign situation bail out the domestic? Is there, is there enough uh, activity in a foreign market that somehow will support our activities here? I'll take a first stab at that. Uh, from a pure investment sales perspective, uh, foreign capital has always been a major component of uh, the total equity capital coming into the United States to buy hard assets, commercial assets. Uh, and uh, the amount of that capital ebbs and flows over time. Uh, German investors in particular have been extremely active investors in commercial real estate in the United States and specifically here in Chicago. As a matter of fact, there was a point in time where Pretty much every new building that was put up in Chicago was sold to some type of German investment fund. And as interest rates started to drop, they were really replaced for a short period of time by uh, investors out there that were borrowing 
85, 90, in some cases even more than 90% of the total purchase price. Uh, German investors also uh, effectively held the line on how low of a cap rate they were willing to pay for an asset because there were certain yields they needed to achieve and once they syndicated out their assets, uh, they still needed to be able to provide to the mom and pop investors back in Germany a certain type of return. We do see an increase in the amount of activity from foreign investors in the United States. Um, Are the foreign investors being more aggressive than they were before? I would say not so much. Uh, What I think is happening is we've just seen a shifting of the more active types of investors from these super highly levered buyers into more traditional pension funds, uh, buyers who use more moderate, more modest levels of debt on their assets just because debt's harder to get and it's more expensive. And so people who can use, who can buy assets, put more equity into a transaction seem to be the more likely buyers. Uh, now, I, I have heard a lot of people say, well, with the euro doing what it's doing, you know, won't uh, European investors just buy everything in sight in the United States because the dollar is so inexpensive? And, and the answer to that is a little bit mixed. I think that you will definitely see increased investment over here, but from a hedging perspective, from a taking advantage of currency differences perspective, there are candidly different kinds of interest uh, instruments, financial instruments, that these overseas investors can put their money into that give them the benefit of the dollar versus the euro exchange rate. So I think you'll see a little bit more foreign investment in the United States, mostly because prices are coming back up to levels that work for them. But I'm not convinced that we're really going to see a massive bailout by foreign investors in the United States just because of the the euro to dollar or whatever the currency uh, translation may be. Yes, sir. With the leverage buyers falling away, are the all equity players stepping in and can they compete with the hedge funds? And are they are they changing the pension funds are changing their allocations for real estate as a result of this new opportunity? Right. Uh, you know, there's uh, uh, the all equity investor is what I call my dream come true. Uh, when I'm selling an asset. And the truth of the matter is there aren't many of them out there. Uh, there are a couple of pension funds that still buy all cash, but there are very few that actually do that. Um, you know, I, I think that what what we're going to see more and more truly is going to be uh, pension funds and, again, these more modest levered uh, buyers coming into real estate, I think the, you know, one of the interesting things about this is if you look at allocations into real estate, and one of the reasons why I personally believe that the future for commercial real estate is not quite as dire as some others may view it, is that real estate as an asset class, commercial real estate in particular, has been a really strong performer for the last couple of years. Uh, and agreed that it is, I think, a lag. There's a lag impact on commercial real estate. But if you look at your alternatives, if you're a big institution and you have billions of dollars to invest every year and you put some of it in equities and you put some of it in fixed incomes and you put some of it in commercial real estate, I don't know that anybody's real excited about what's been happening in the equity markets recently. Uh, the fixed income markets are, you know, they, they've been volatile. And then there's commercial real estate. 
And it may end up being that the real return on commercial real estate ends up being a little bit less than it has been in the past, but still, relatively speaking, I believe a lot of people still view it as a relatively safe investment vehicle, and I do believe we'll continue to see some pretty strong equity flows into commercial real estate. They're going to bottom feed. The equity guys are going to bottom feed. You saw that chart up there for the last five years where the little blue line went down and not up? That's where they're going. All these little cranes that you see out here on the skyline that don't have people to backfill them, they're going to be the first ones in line at the Northern Trust to buy those things. And they'll reposition them and put them back in the marketplace in the right manner and hold them during the time frame where we go through this period of, of um, indecision that's taking place in the capital markets. It started last summer. Uh, everybody couldn't get enough at the trough. They were buying and paying unbelievably low cap rates to get products that were even very average. And then all of a sudden, someone in, in the marketplace said, oh, my gosh, what are we doing? We're filled. We're fat with all this real estate. What do we do? Let's do nothing. And that's what's going on right now. And that's what's, what's hurting the commercial side significantly. Most of the people in this room make a living off of the transactional side of this industry, not the creation of value, in most cases not the manipulation of value, but bringing the two parties together to have a transaction happen. For that reason and that reason alone, we have to keep the real estate market moving forward and as stable as possible. Um, on that note, Paul, uh, what are our politicians uh, doing to uh, promote that uh, activity, to keep those transactions uh, alive? Unlike anybody in this room, if we can't pay our bills, they have the opportunity of raising taxes. And there seems to be, Paul, absolutely no accountability for this. Uh, if you come home and your wife says, gosh, um, we overspent this month, what are we going to do? Uh, I'm sure a discussion ensues for a period of time and people are sleeping in different bedrooms. <laughs> If that happens in Chicago, you have someone stand up in front of you on the television nightly news show and say, you, Chicagoans, have a problem. You have to accept higher taxes. And what's happened is, is that it's become too much of a burden. Um, if you take a look at a commercial office building 15 years ago, it was taxed at about a dollar and a half a square foot. Today, we're looking at 15 to $20 a square foot for that same building. Well, real estate rental incomes have not accelerated at the same speed, so we have a glass ceiling. So when you take and you raise the taxes, and then you add on top of that the increase in operating expenses, how much margin do you have left for a profit? And that's where equities are running away from Chicago because they're going to go where they can get the greatest return. Where are they running to, Darren? In, the, <laughs> in North America. Well, far, be it, far be it for me to help them and help any of them leave, uh, <laughs> but we've done that. Uh, you know, I would say in any, in any location decision, there are lots of other 
opportunities out there that companies have when they think about where to deploy offices than Chicago. Okay, and, and many of us and myself living in Chicago, we tend to be very Chicago-focused, uh, and we think, well, why not Chicago? Um, well, the, companies have too many choices right now. And so when we talk about uh, uh, raising taxes and uh, you know making it harder for businesses to be successful within, within the city and within the county, I think that that's going to have an impact. Um, and in, in a recessionary environment, companies will look at those kind of factors uh, much more closely with much greater scrutiny. And there are lots of other Tier 1 uh, locations in our country and outside our country that are, are fantastic uh, options for, for companies. And I, I'll, I'll throw one out at you, and it's Atlanta. We've seen a, a massive flight of uh, corporate headquarters out of the Midwest and in the Northeast into Atlanta. It's a huge destination for corporate headquarters. And they've got just as good an airport as we do, and they've got costs that are a fraction of ours. So, But Atlanta doesn't have water. Okay. Now... But, 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 but that brings up another issue because uh, uh, there's, there's a whole, you know, we're, we're much more environmentally sensitive today. Uh, Al Gore uh, won a, uh, an Oscar and a Nobel Prize for it. Uh, how is that affecting demand? Are, are, is there increased demand for green buildings now uh, other yeah. than the mayor wanting them? Yeah, and, and I can speak to that one both from a, a tenant uh, and an advisor. So um, Deloitte occupies 111 South Wacker, a new building that, that we had built for us, and uh, we intentionally incorporated uh, green concepts and lead concepts into that design. And uh, for Deloitte, um, you know, it, for us, it's all about winning the war for talent. And, uh, we're, you know, we're trying to attract um, maybe many of those of you that are students in, the, in, this, uh, in this room. And, and if you talk to people that are under the age of, of uh, 30, uh, and I look like I'm under the age of 30, but I can assure you I'm not, um, environmentalism <laughs> in green is, is, is not just a fad for them. Um, it's, it's part of their lifestyle and it's part of their culture. And when we think about um, 72 million baby boomers that are going to be retiring in this country in the near future, we have a massive amount of hiring that we're going to have to do, all of us. And anything that we can do um, as, as a company to make ourselves more appealing to uh, the talent markets, that's a good thing for us. Excuse me, a good thing for us. So we uh, intentionally try to incorporate uh, green and lead into our, our uh, design standards. We've been doing so for a number of years. Uh, we're proud of 111 South Wacker, that it's, it's one of those buildings that, that has um, that kind of um, uh, aspect to it. It's helped us in the talent market. Um, and quite honestly, even though it costs us a few dollars more, we as an organization are willing to pay it. You mentioned the uh, uh, retirement of, of baby boomers. Even this old, aging, rapidly aging <laughs> baby boomer uh, can now essentially work from any location where I can get a high-speed connection, including my sailboat on Fridays. So, um, and obviously the, the younger uh, people are even better at that. Um, how is that affecting demand for space? Do we, do we still need, you know, with video conferencing and, and, and uh, the ability to work uh, off-site, as I say, how is that affecting demand for office space. Anybody? Well, I, again, I, I hate to take this one too, but um, you guys pile on if you want. 
I, I think it's I think it's definitely de- affecting demand, and not just in our industry in consulting. I mean, for us, we we don't make anything. We 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 don't have manufacturing plants or distribution centers. Our whole business is people, and uh, so we've been hoteling in in all of our offices around the world for a number of years. We have 150,000 people across the globe. We, as tenants, we care very much about how much space we can use, and so hoteling and flexible uh, officing and remote workspace is is part of our culture. But it's also part of Sun Microsystems and HP and, and GE and Microsoft and all the other big companies that we can think of that are, are huge, prodigious users of space. Um, um, they're employing those concepts. And work, workforce trends and, and uh, the ability to work remotely, again, this is all about the talent war. Um, the, the, the battles that we've been fighting for talent in the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, this is going to turn into an all-out war for talent in the next five to 10 years. There just aren't enough people to fill the jobs that we're gonna we're gonna need filled to keep this economy growing, um, and I think that flexible uh, officing has got to be part of that concept. Those of you that are designing facilities maybe are experiencing some of that too. There's a pretty direct carryover also into uh, our business. Uh, there are a number of funds out there right now that have jumped on the bandwagon, the green bandwagon. Uh, virtually every pension fund advisor that exists out there that invests in commercial real estate has their brand new green fund. And so what we're seeing is that a lot of owners of properties that do not have LEED certification are now scrambling to figure out what it is that they need to do in order to get a LEED certification. And so uh, we're, we're seeing a whole new uh, kind of series of, I don't know if this is going to be the newest thing since uh, asbestos being replaced by mold, being replaced by uh, <laughs> consultants who focus on uh, energy efficiency and, and green buildings. Uh, but there is a massive emphasis and it's, you know, part of it is, I think, being driven at one end of the spectrum by recruiting, by uh, kind of social responsibility. And I think the other end of it is being driven by, and perhaps in large piece by uh, reaction to that, is that there are, in fact, a number of funds out there that only want to invest in buildings that do, in fact, have LEED certification. And so there will be kind of an interesting play, I think, from one to the other in terms of, you see more capital that wants to buy buildings that are green, all of a sudden you're going to see more buildings that are green. And so that, that is something that I think is going to you know, really ripple across the, uh, the city. I'm taking a slightly different position on this because I have to build these green buildings. And nobody spends the green to get the green. <laughs> Trust me. And if I were to ask you, would each of you give up $500 a month out of your paycheck to work in a green building versus not, how many people would raise their hand? Just kidding. (laughs) This is the problem. I want to say this. I don't think a lot of people understand what LEED stands for, not just what the acronym is, but what it means. It hasn't gotten to the level of sophistication yet where it is doing what it was intended to do. For example, I get the same number of points for putting a bicycle rack in front of my building as I do for building a building that has a double glass curtain wall with an air monitoring system in between it. How many double glass curtain walls do you think people are going to pay for to get the points that they can get for a bicycle rack? And that's the problem. I agree with Darren. He is absolutely correct. And I agree with Bruce that These are going to be the tiebreakers when people buy buildings. But until the lead 
system stops being politically correct and nice and really sets itself about the task of doing what it was intending to do when it started, it's merely a politically correct thing to say and do. And we're all running around saying sustainable buildings, and no one has the slightest idea what a sustainable building is. <laughs> For example, I'd like to have waterless toilets in my buildings. City of Chicago won't allow it. Point in case, at Dearborn Center, I built the first building in Chicago where we have no ductwork in the ceilings. Thus, we don't have one of these little collectors of the molds and golds and all those things that give colds. <laughs> and all the air came through the floor. Guess what happened? When the sheet metal workers of Chicago found out that there would be no sheet metal in the building, they put a stop to it. Now we can't build that here in Chicago. So until this thing really comes to the point where it's meaningful and people are really behind it, not because it's politically correct and it's cute to say at cocktail parties, but they'll really put their money where their mouth is, it isn't going to happen. Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll react to that. So I think, I think <laughs> Paul, you know, I, I'm with you. I think that the market needs to figure out how to make green affordable. Um, for the majority of, of uh, the, the tenants out there. I, I think that the universe of tenants that are willing to fa- pay a few more bucks a square foot uh, for a lean or green, lead or green building is minimal. And so until we get the market to figure out how to make it affordable or at least equivalent, um, we're not going to get there. Any more questions from the uh, audience? Yes, sir. I'm a leasing manager, and I... Uh, and leasing property, renewing property out to 2008, 2000, beginning of 2009 right now. Right now, what I do is I go to brokers and I say, what do you think is going on in that market? And they give me their forecast, but I feel like it's a forecast from what's happened in the past. Where would you suggest that I look outside of just talking to brokers where that particular market is headed so that I can be making a good decision about whether I'm renewing five years or ten years into the future. What marketplace? Uh, it could be any of them. I go all the way west, uh, Denver. Uh, you know, um, I'm looking at all different markets. Seattle, Texas. I mean, they, you know, part of the answer there is you probably have to just triangulate from a bunch of different sources. I'm not sure there's any one source that's going to get you there. You could ask Paul, certainly, and I'm sure Paul could give you his perspective on uh, what's going to happen in macroeconomic trends. I think part of it is every market has its own set of circumstances in terms of new supply that's coming online, uh, in terms of uh, you know major uh, relocations in or out of the market that are going to drive, you know, is it right to advise a client for uh, a five-year stint or a 10-year stint? You know, here in Chicago, you know, it's if you're looking out in uh, 08 and 09, we've got people who are looking out at 2012, 2013, 2015 expirations that are trying to make decisions now about what's the right thing to do, uh, and you know they run the they run the gamut, and uh, you know so much of it is a function of you know what do you think is going to happen, supply and demand? Are you going to see uh, generally tightening of uh, vacancy statistics, or are you going to see, because of new supply, you're going to see those 
those rates change. And I'm not sure there's any one place to go at it. I think there's probably, this isn't a great answer to your question, but I think there are probably just a number of different routes you need to go from looking at the macro factors to, you know, digging down into the, the microeconomic factors that go into determining whether or not rental rates, you know, at the end of the day, what you want to know is how do I give my clients good advice on, you know, do I lock in long term or not? And it, it's, uh, you know, most of the people in this room who are on the leasing side, you know, struggle with that, or struggle with that, have opinions on that, uh, you know, as to that factor. And it's just, it's going to be very much market specific, I think, as to uh, how you want to look at it. But you have to talk to a little, and it's like a lot of things in our business. You just have to talk to a bunch of different people that you respect and get their opinions and talk to people like, uh, you know, Darren, and you know, what what are major employers looking to do over the next couple of years? Are they growing? Are they shrinking? And and you have to triangulate. Yeah, I would have to be really convinced that a long term lease in in this kind of recessionary, potentially deflationary real estate market would make sense. All right. So everything we've heard today talks about decreasing demand for real estate, um, increasing uncertainty. You know, so so I would think of rather than locking in a, a lease rate now for a protracted period of time, what, what kind of strategic flexibility are your clients going to need in year five or year three, right? Rather than locking them into a ten-year uh, known lease rate, I'm, I mean, who knows? In five years, maybe you'll be able to sign an even less expensive lease for them. Um, I, I would really have to be convinced um, that that a long-term deal makes sense in this kind of environment. Um, and, and rather than save money on the lease, I'd, I'd look at, well, you know, what if our business needs are dramatically different in year three or year five? And lastly, I'd say, what's the credit behind the lease? Because all you have is a handshake. Take, for example, Deloitte Touche. I say this positively, not negatively. It's a partnership, and the partners are exonerated from any personal liability. Their assets are very limited. And those receivables that they are about to get, they won't pledge. So they sign a lease, and based on your trust and your belief that they will remain in business and honor the terms of that lease, that's all you have. So I think you have to look to the quality of the people you're working with as well. Well, I want to say that we have real quality on this panel today, and I want to thank uh, Paul Darren and Bruce for the great insights that they give. Thank you very much. And I would like to thank Paul Casriel, who's one of my favorite economists. Uh. Thanks very much. Glad you could all make it. We'll see some of you in December and others back in January. Thanks very much.